Ready? Okay. Probably because this is episode 22 of Have a Blessed Gay, your weekly spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin. Thank you to everyone who went to the website and checked out the release of the new Have a Blessed Gay vertical, The B Word. I'm so excited to continue sharing articles from people who are questioning, providing resources, and creating their own religious and spiritual paths, like Inspiration Station. If you haven't checked it out yet, you better, because a new article just came out today called The Name of God, A Trans Approach by the wonderful R. Marshall. I'll be talking more about this article toward the end of the episode, and there will also be an excerpt from it read by the author. So definitely listen all the way to the end. Then you can go read the full article on the website, haveablessgay.com, sign up for the newsletter, and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It was my birthday this past weekend, and I may or may not have noticed that you didn't give me a gift. But there is a way to rectify that. It would mean so much to me for you to leave a quick review and just to share the podcast with some people who may need some spiritual support in their lives. I am so stoked for today's guest, someone I actually found on Instagram. I stumbled upon an infographic about religious trauma relating to sex, gender, and sexuality. To me, that was like a Scooby-Doo snack. I was like... <laughs> Her name is Casey Tanner. And we are gonna be talking about... surrounding religious trauma. So, sex, yes, but maybe not so sexy. Casey is a queer-identified intersectional sex and relationship therapist who combines evidence-based support with tenderness and levity to create spaces in which people feel seen and understood. Specializing in gender and sexual diversity, Casey partners with individuals, relationships, and institutions to expand possibilities for connection and pleasure. So many of us, whether we were raised in a religious household or not, have experienced some type of religious sexual trauma because our society has adopted a ton of religious fear and shame surrounding sex. Like the idea that sex is naughty, limiting our sex education in America, 
stereotyping gender roles, straight being the default in our society, our concept of romance and how it is, well, romanticized, the concept of waiting for marriage or promising ourselves to only be with one singular person ever, as if that is somehow superior or more meaningful, or the idea that masturbation is wrong, all the way to more extreme examples like perfectionism surrounding body image and mind, using Bibles or sacred texts to condemn a group of people, and socially and religiously demanding the forgiveness of abuse. There is quite a lot to unpack here, so without any further ado, let's just get into this combo with KC Tanner. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp help.com slash blessed gay to check it out and get what 10% off the best part is you don't even have to leave your house they offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor video calls phone calls real-time chat and direct messaging all counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board in other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash blessed gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. Casey Tanner, welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. Oh my gosh, I could not be more excited to be here. And I could not be more excited <laughs> that you are here. And I just want to get into it, okay? Tell us who you are and yeah. what the hell you do. What the hell do I do? So I am a queer sex therapist. And what that basically means is I'm somebody who identifies as queer. And I work with people around relationships, sexuality, trauma, and gender. Uh, and then I do a lot of free sex education via social media. So that's that's top line what I do. Well, before we start talking about sex, I want to have some foreplay. Uh, of course. It is the best part, right? <laughs> yes. So you grew up in an evangelical Christian household, isn't that mm -hmm. right? I did. I did grow up in an evangelical Christian household. I grew up, you know, I didn't have that pastor parent that so many people talk about, but I did have two parents that taught Sunday school and, you know, wrote the musicals for the church. So I was I was a church kid through and through. The church musicals. Can you give us examples of what these musicals were? I love this. Oh, my gosh. So my mom was writing the junior high musicals. And no kidding. 
she would like take children's books and convert them into musicals. And there was one where one of the songs she chose was actually Material Girl by Madonna. And that was part of the church musical. And, you know, it was like total nepotism. I would always get the lead role in these musicals. So imagine like a church musical with a bunch of junior high kids singing Madonna Material Girl to communicate that, you know, material things aren't important in life. Wow. Yes. Wow. If that's not just like the epitome of an American church, I don't know what (laughs) is. That is so hilarious to me. Yeah. Uh, it takes me back. It takes me back to all the wonderful. Did you ever have puppets oh, in any of your I mean, stuff? I was a puppeteer. I was th- I was a puppeteer. Um, Christmas Eve services. I mean, it was an honor to be a puppeteer at the church, especially like if you got to be the donkey in the Christmas Eve service, then you got the best song and you got to do like cool hand movements. And so everybody was vying for the donkey role in the puppet show. Yes. This is so funny to me. Yeah. Okay. So obviously you got to perform and you were like building your acting resume at church, (laughs) but like, what did you think of religion and spirituality as a whole? Oh my gosh. I I mean, it was a mind fuck for me because I didn't go to a religious school, but I was in a religious household and I went to extremely religious camps. And one thing I remember is just being constantly split in half. Part of me was so invested and felt so connected to everything that I was learning in church. And then there was another part of me that when I when I hung out with my friends, I had to totally compartmentalize it. And so I feel like there are almost these two versions of me growing up. One that was like trying very, very hard to be the perfect Christian and the other one that just wanted to be accepted in, in my junior high social life. And I just it was a constant battle between those two things for me. And I think to this day, I, I still have those parts of me that sort of battle with one another. You're practically the Miley Cyrus of church. Oh, that is the best compliment you could possibly give me. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you're obviously involved. You are very involved in church. What did you think of spirituality? Were you a spiritual kid and young adult? Yeah, I absolutely was. I mean, I truly was the type of kid that when I, you know, when I was struggling with my homework or I lost something that I wanted to find, I would pray about it and I would mean it and I would believe that God was going to help me, you know, finish my math homework. And I would believe that God was going to help me, you know, find my lost teddy bear. Like I, I really did connect to that. And I had conversations with God all the time. Um, you know, I, I think that like th- these days, the way I would describe it is I, I totally drank the Kool-Aid, but back in the day, I, it just, it was such a core part of my identity. You almost couldn't disconnect my identity from that part of me. And you were on a path to become a minister. Isn't that right? It's true. So I, yeah, I went to Wheaton College. Are you familiar? Yeah, I know of it. That's about it, though. Yeah. So, okay. So Billy Graham founded it. So Uh if that gives you a a sense of... What type of school it is. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, you know, I'm going to just say the spiel that Wheaton gives, but it's the number one evangelical Christian school in the world, theoretically, according to them. But it's also a school where um, in order to go there, you have to sign a document that says you won't be gay. And you have to sign a document that says you're not going to drink even if you're over 21 and that you're not going to dance in your dorm room. Um, that's the type of school that it was. And I went there with the intention of becoming a youth pastor. And I actually did youth ministry for many years. Wow. Okay. So did you enjoy going to Wheaton? I mean, with the atmosphere, the environment that you were raised in, I guess it kind of seems like 
just the natural progression transition to to go into something like that? Yeah. So it, it, it was actually a dream school for me at the time. It was exactly where I wanted to go and where I wanted to be. And when I got that document, I was more than happy to sign it because I had, you know, I had buried my queerness way, way deep down. So I, I wasn't even really aware of it. And so I didn't even think twice about it. It was values aligned for me at the time. I, I loved doing youth ministry. And it wasn't until my junior year of college that I would have preferred to be anywhere except for Wheaton. And and that's when things really started changing for me. And what was that? What altered that vision for you? Well, I was struggling deeply with mental health. I was, um, you know, while I was enjoying the friends I was making and feeling aligned with the work that I was doing, I started dealing with a ton of depression and anxiety and eating disorder. And it became really clear to me that something wasn't right. Like there was something going on that was beneath the surface that I I wasn't able to put words to. And I went to therapy and, you know, a, a couple years into therapy, I just had this one session where I said, you know, my therapist's name was Angela. I said, Angela, I think, I think I'm gay. And I think if I don't start talking about it, I might die. Like I might actually get to a place with my mental health where I can't go on anymore. And I feel like I I actually have to face this. Um, And, you know, I hear so many people in the church's journeys with this. And for so many, it's a slow process of uh, first coming out to yourself, then coming out to others. For me, it almost was a 48 hour turnaround. Like I came out in therapy and then I was on OkCupid within 24 hours matching with women and started dating my first girlfriend like a week later. So I dove in head first and it was only within a matter of a few months that I really started questioning all of the doctrine around me and, and my life's course. Wow. That is just so crazy. I, I have questions about the therapist. Uh, one, was it a Christian therapist? And then two, just what was that coming out experience like with them? Because I know a lot of LGBTQ people do come out to therapists, but number one, they're just not versed in LGBTQ issues. And then second, they might be involved in a religion that is not compatible. So this person who they are literally paying to support them does not. And it becomes a really traumatic experience. What was the coming out experience like for you with that therapist? Yeah. So I've, I have had both of those experiences, but this is actually kind of a wild story. I'd been seeing this therapist for about four years because she specialized in eating disorders and anxiety. So I, I didn't go to her for anything except that. And, um, I later found out that, you know, she's a queer person. And I also didn't know that the therapy center I was going to was called Introspectrum and their uh, logo was a rainbow. And I had no idea that the whole time I had been going to a gay therapy center. Shut Literally, up. I had no clue. Yeah. And so later on, I saw um, a therapist through Wheaton College that was Christian and that was a wildly different experience. But when I came out to this therapist, she was basically like, yeah, Casey, I know you're gay. <laughs> I knew this about you. That's incredible. Yeah. And up to that point, would you say that you just hadn't related to the word queer or gay yet? So I think I had the experience that so many people do, which is that experience of knowing, but not knowing, Yeah. you know, when I was, when I was realizing I was a sexual person, uh, probably right around seventh grade, I realized I was in love with my best friend who was also a girl. 
And, uh, but, but, you know, there's no allowance for that. There's no language for that. I knew something was different. I knew that, um, I knew that, you know, I had feelings for her that were beyond friendship. And when I communicated that to her, I actually lost the friendship. And that was sort of, I I made a deal with myself that, you know, I was, I was never going to talk about it again. And in not talking about it again, I buried it so deep, but I actually, uh, have a video of myself. It was captured in a family video when I was five years old. And my dad is saying, um, Hey Casey, do you have any boyfriends at school? And I say, no, I'm going to marry a girl. And he says, Oh, well, you know, that's not so weird these days, but we hope you're kidding. And it's just wild to have that moment on video because it's just such a, a, an amazing example of how well kids know themselves and then how adults just sort of, um, make kids forget what they already know. Oh, yes. And I want to know, this goes into gender and sexuality. What were you taught about sex as an adolescent? Or rather, what were you not taught, probably? Yeah, so I I definitely got the basics of, you know, sex should be saved for marriage. Um, And not just sex. I mean, I, I was in certain circles where even kissing was being saved until marriage. So truly, I mean, anything that you did with another person that involved touching um, was supposed to be done with such intentionality. I remember, you know, you're not supposed to front hug a guy. You can only side hug a guy because God forbid your chests touch each other and you, you know, trigger the guy into having a sexual fantasy. And I think that's, that's another big piece of it is that, you know, I, obviously the church is talking about gender in a very binary way. And it was very clear that it was girls and women's jobs to um, sort of walk this line between not being so sexy that you would uh, trigger a guy into being sexual, but not being so ugly that Christian guys went off with secular women. And so, <laughs> right, it like became yeah. the job of the, the girl to like wear just the right of makeup, but not too much. Because, you know, we want, we don't want to, I think the phrase was, we don't want to trip up our brothers in Christ. Ew. You know, this kind of reminds me of though, Legally Blonde. Oh my gosh. What about it? How like Warren dumps Elle because she's not traditional. So he gets with uh, Vivian who is more Uh, traditional. Yeah. (laughs) No, I get what you're saying. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was the message to men is like, you're supposed to find a girl who's you know, who embodies purity and grace, but also like, you're going to have to choose this person and only have sex with them for the rest of your life. So they also, you know, they also have to, even though they've never had sex before, they also have to be the best sex ever. It's, it's incredible double standard. Yeah. It's pretty baffling to, to really think about, uh, on your Instagram, you created just an amazing infographic surrounding religious trauma on sexuality. You have a ton of helpful and informative infographics on there, but this one for obvious reasons really stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. I would love to dive into your list and just dismantle some of this shit. Yes. But first, would you just explain what religious trauma is and how it does pertain to gender and sexuality? Yeah, absolutely. So not everybody experiences religion as traumatic, but many people do. And I think when people do experience it as traumatic, it's because that religion or the doctrine is being weaponized against them. And it's being used to either discriminate against people, control them, create shame within them, 
or isolate them, whether it's isolating them from themselves, parts of themselves, or isolating them from their former life or isolating them from other people in their community. And so what I think about when I think about religious trauma is religion is so fraught with power dynamics and anything fraught with power dynamics is going to be subjected to the possibility of power abuse. And so religious trauma is uh, when power is being abused and different people define that in different ways. But I think whenever we create a hierarchy where certain people are better or more accepted or more allowed than others, that can be traumatic. Oh, yes, I completely agree. An example that you give in your infographic is purity culture. Now, I wasn't as cool as the Jonas Brothers and I did not have a promise <laughs> ring, but it is a culture and I was so a part of that. I wanted, I, I desired to save myself for, for marriage. That was such a big deal for me. And looking back, it's just so crazy. And thank God for evolution. Like, thank goodness I grew out of <laughs> yes. that. Uh, but would you just talk with me about purity culture and how that will fuck up a person? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, purity culture basically teaches is that this this incredibly natural desire to be touched, to connect in a sexual way, to experience pleasure, that all of that is bad, except in the context of marriage. So what happens there is that until somebody gets married, they're they're meant to respond to any sexual desire um, with, by squelching it, by saying no to themselves, by viewing it not only as bad, but like not to be extreme, but this is real rhetoric, that it's of the devil, right? Like that if you're experiencing a desire to be sexual before you are married, that is coming from a dark and a sinful place within you. And then on, on your wedding night, all of that is supposed to flip on its head and you're suddenly supposed to be this open, sexual, connected person who not only can experience pleasure, but can provide pleasure. And so I, I think one of the main ways it fucks people up is it, it makes people compartmentalize themselves and it places totally unrealistic expectations on people. How in the world, if for, you know, say 22 years of your life, you're taught that that part of you is bad. Are you supposed to just walk down the aisle, get married and suddenly be a sexual person who who feels whole and who, who feels ready to engage in that way. And I can't tell you how many people in the church are, are sort of under this guise that on their wedding night, there's suddenly, there's going to be a click. They're suddenly just going to understand sexuality. It's suddenly all the guilt and shame is going to go away. And I can't tell you how many people, you know, years into their marriage are still sitting with that guilt and shame because it doesn't just go away because you put a ring on it. Well, yeah, it's like you said earlier, if people haven't ever experienced it and they're not taught about it, they don't know. They don't know what to do. Like they don't even know the physical things that they're supposed to be doing. And right. they've never explored how they themselves feel or or what they like, what they do not like. And to just be thrust into a situation and made to figure it out with one person is is really bizarre and, and we don't do that with anything else like we don't expect someone to go in and be a pro at something and to only do it one way forever and that's it like that is just it's a very bizarre concept yeah I mean even within the church you know there I, I think 
what we're supposed to believe or what I, I felt I was supposed to believe when I was a Christian was that, you know, there wasn't this hierarchy of sins that like all sins were created equal. But the reality of being in the church is that, you know, similarly to outside of the church, sexuality is put on this negative pedestal as this thing that's worse than anything else. Um, and, and it's, oh my gosh, especially if you're queer. I mean, how are you supposed to figure that out um, before marriage, if you're not allowed to explore yourself sexually to any degree. And I think that's why so many people in the church get married and only realize their sexuality and attraction and gender after the fact. Yeah, it's just so many. And it, it reminds me of the episode with Dr. Kyle Myers on here. And I talk about that there are 7 billion people, over 7 billion people on this planet, mm -hmm. and we expect them to fall under two gender categories and one sexual category. It's wild. That is insane. Right. What else in the world has so little nuance as the way we're supposed to think about gender and sex? Yeah. And we're doing it with these things that are super duper complex that we really don't know that much about. That's really just feelings for each individual person. Mm -hmm. And it, it is, it really is so baffling. Right. And something else that hit me hard in your infographic was gatekeeping who can participate. It made me think of all the people I personally know and the people who have reached out to me that are not allowed to hold leadership roles in their communities because of their gender or sexuality. And a lot of times it's not even about leadership. They're just not given a voice, period. Yet they still attend the church or group and give themselves to a community that does not uplift them or view them as an equal. They just accept that in that space, they are lesser than. And this reminds me of people who are with abusive partners that stay and somehow justify the abuse. Would you talk through the psychology of this and why someone would choose to stay and endure an abusive relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many parallels between religious trauma and abusive relationships. One of them being that like abusive partners, abusive religious leaders are often, you know, extremely warm, welcoming, charismatic, know how to make you feel special. Uh, you know, I think so many people who are attracted to especially, you know, more extreme kinds of religion, like evangelical Christianity are coming from places or families where they either um, were in that extreme environment already or or almost the opposite. They didn't feel understood. They felt lonely. And here came along this religious community that maybe for the first time made them feel seen in some kind of way. And I think that's the thing that's so important when we're talking about any kind of abusive relationship is abusive relationships aren't bad 100 percent of the time. There's reasons why people stay in them. And that's because you know, it could be 50, it could be 90% of the time, that relationship might feel really good. It's and it's so cyclical. There it's it's like a roller coaster, but there's just enough good, just enough acceptance, just enough feeling special to get you to stay through the moments where maybe there is a part of you that says, you know, something doesn't feel right here. So I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it another parallel between abusive relationships and, and, you know, an abusive religious context is that you get isolated from people 
who could help you get out of it. So in an abusive partnership, um, it's not uncommon that the abuser would uh, stop allowing you to hang out with friends one-on-one, would want to come with you to hang out. Um, And that's because they want to control the opportunity that you have to process what's going on in the relationship. And the same is true, especially in evangelical Christianity, because it's preached that as Christians, you're not supposed to seek advice from non-Christians. And anything a non-Christian says, you really have to take with a grain of salt because they're not thinking about it through the same lens. And so suddenly, the only people you're allowed to get support from are people within your community, people who you know have already bought into some of the same mythology that you have, and then you're in an echo chamber. Um, and so I think, you know, I think it's really, really easy to get stuck in that cycle in both cases. Well, what are some signs people can look out for so they can try to avoid sexual trauma from religion or any type of organized group for that matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are some key red flags to look for. One of them is black and white thinking. So if you ever come into a context where there's like this clear line drawn between right and wrong, good and bad, evil and good. I think for me, that's always been a red flag that this might be a space that has trouble tolerating gray areas. And as we just said, like we're all living in the gray area. And so that's a, that's a space where it's really easy um, to get isolated. I think another thing to look out for is a situation where there are these rules and expectations, but the leaders aren't expected to follow the same rules. So anytime Mm. that someone in power is viewing themselves as an exception to a standard that they're holding other people to, that to me is a sign that power may be being abused. Um, I think, you know, secrecy, like if there's this, this, uh, if there's a religious group where there's this sort of like elite chosen few that are allowed to be part of decision-making processes and, and other people are being left out or people are you know, being asked to participate in rituals that haven't been explained to them, or they're not actually able to give enthusiastic consent to. I think that's a really big red flag. Um, and I think you know, the other thing is, it, it's so important in these contexts that there is some type of neutral or third-party resource that you can go to to report abuse. So I would be looking for, like, if something were to happen in this community, where would I go? And would I be able to get support? Because so often what happens is that the only person you can go to for support has ties to the person in power or the abuser or is so um, is so intent on upholding the community that they may not actually be interested in the type of accountability that's so important. I think those are some of the the red flags that I think about. Okay, so this really reminds me. Are you watching the HBO docuseries The Vow that's going on right now? No, should I be? Oh, yes. It's about the cult Nexium. Do you, do you know what that is? No. Okay. So there's this cult like that turned into a sex cult that was very popular a couple of years ago. And basically that what you're saying happened. These people got involved. It was actually a really positive experience. They were really enjoying it until it made a very big turn. And then they were stuck basically because everyone that they tried to talk to was somehow working with like the top two or however many people. And so they had nowhere to go. And the only choice is really just to run away and hope that they didn't come after them, but they had like given collateral and like, it's crazy. Definitely, definitely check that out. But yeah, this really reminds me of that. And 
I, I do think it's kind of important to note that a lot of main world religions do unfortunately have cult-like systems. So just to be aware of that and to make sure that you do have a safety net and you do have people that you can talk to uh, that uh, are going to truly listen and, and try to help. Yeah, I mean, my the church that I grew up with, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's sort of a big mega church in the Chicago area. It's called Willow Creek. There was just this whole blow up where the pastor I actually grew up listening to, um, it just came out that he was sexually abusing a number of people on his staff and that this has been going on for years, but nobody had a place to go to report it where those people weren't trying to protect the guy. And and so I think in cases like that, years go by before people get the help that they need. And so this built in like uh, check and balance around power is so important to keep a spiritual community healthy. Yes. I mean, ministers are just people and elders are just people. Leaders are just human beings. And I think that we need to remember that from time to time. Yes, we do. Another form of religious trauma you mentioned is using scripture to justify abusive behavior. And there is so, so much to this one. Would you help break this one down? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many interpretations of scripture. And so, you know, there are churches and leaders who will interpret it in a way that isn't harmful. And then there are, of course, the ones that interpret it in a way that allows them to justify abusive behavior. So, um, you know, there are certain churches and sects where they believe that the the priest or whoever's in charge is God's connection to the world, or it's sort of the, the person they have to go through to access God. And I think especially in those situations, um, it's, it's so easy for that person to basically say, who are you to question the power that I have? I have this direct line to God that you don't have. And so if you're having questions about the way that I'm using that power, really, who are you to question that? So I think it, I think it, it gives abusive leaders uh, the opportunity to put congregants in their place by sort of saying, I'm, I'm somebody that's been chosen in this way and you aren't. I think another thing here, I mean, obviously, you know, that's so relevant is, is using scripture uh, um, to discriminate against gay people, against people who are genderqueer. Certainly a lot of white supremacy has been justified by scriptures, you know, even just passages that are, you know, against interracial marriage. I think there are, there are those interpretations where people are maybe a little more evolved and say, okay, I'm looking at this in the context that this was written at the time. And there are people that to this day, you know, are taking those passages literally and using them to harm people. And I think that it's not the scripture itself. Often it's actually just the way that people are interpreting it. Oh, completely. And it really does add an extra layer when, when a group is associated with a higher power. I mean, it just like you were saying, because people can place blame on the higher power, as we often see, mm-hmm. uh, being like, oh, it's not me, it's God. I'm just doing what God wants. It's his work. Right. And if you go against me, then in turn, you are going against God. And it it's such a sick and upsetting form of manipulation that has unfortunately been around for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I, it's a, I, I think it's a, a form of manipulation that is proven to work. Yeah. And, it, and obviously it's not just the church, it, but the church does because it speaks to some of our most existential fears and anxieties about moving through the world. It really does have this very specific type of power over us. Yes. Another example you listed that 
made my stomach turn on itself, packed its bags, walked out the front door, road trip around the U.S., brought me back a T-shirt I'll never wear, and then flipped back over, was, was exploiting doctrine to demand forgiveness for abuse. And I'm going to repeat this one. Exploiting doctrine to demand forgiveness for abuse. What are some examples of this? Uh, You know, I really can only speak to Christianity here because that's my background. But one of one of the core teachings is that the type of forgiveness that we're offered through Jesus is that not only will we be forgiven, but we'll be looked at as if we've never even sinned. And so then there's this message that um, that Christians need to be like Jesus in that way. So when someone harms them, not only do they need to forgive, but they need to be able to interact with that person as if they've never actually done anything wrong. And the way this played itself out in my experience is I remember, I'll always remember a women's group I was in that was led by a man, which we, we can, you know, that's oh. a whole other situation we can talk about. Um, women's group led by a man where he was basically saying, if we had been abused, then the only way we can be like Jesus is to look our abuser in the eye and completely forget that we'd ever been abused by them, that that's what forgiveness is. And so that sets us up to not only not be allowed to have boundaries against people who have abused us, but to to somehow it, it puts the accountability in the hands of the victims and the survivors instead of the people that have actually done harm. And it does so under the guise that the only way to really be holy or to be like God is to offer this level of forgiveness that involves, you know, like setting no boundaries and looking at somebody as if they've never hurt you before. And, oh my gosh, I mean, research can tell us all day long that that's not actually what leads people to heal, but that very much is the mythology. Well, hey, listen, I am a bitter bitch and I do not forgive super easily. (laughs) But this also reminds me actually of what you were saying way earlier in the conversation, how you felt responsible for how males perceived you. And it kind of ties into that idea that because you were involved, you are now somehow responsible for the resolution, which is just insane. Oh, it's totally insane. And I think there's this added layer too, where people who seek help around it are told, well, you know, if you do speak out about this, you'll really hurt this community. Like imagine what the community will think, right? And, and so not only is it your responsibility to forgive, but it's also somehow your responsibility to, to you know, control the way the community sees this abuser. It's just totally, it's wild, but happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, we saw that a lot during the Me Too movement, people being oh, like, yeah. oh, well, why would you ruin this person's whole career over just one yes. night? You know, and we yes. like, obviously, it's not oh, just one yes. night. And, and we learned that through that process. But like, damn, how much does it take, you know? Right. For people who have experienced sexual or gender abuse from their religion, which is sadly probably a lot of people, whether we're fully aware of it or not, what are steps people can take to ease those wounds? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first step is to get in touch with that small voice, however small it is inside of you that says like something isn't right here and to actually validate that voice because 
you know, we get gaslighted so often in religious communities that I think we learn to do the same thing to ourselves and we'll hear that voice and we'll think, oh, well, that that's not of God or you know, that's, you know, that's a secular thought. That's not a godly thought. But to actually really ask the question, you know, if my gut is consistently telling me something doesn't feel right, I am trustworthy to listen to that. It's at the very least worth maybe going to a therapist who's outside of that religious community, or maybe seeking the advice of a friend who's outside of the religious community. I know that can be really challenging, especially with the rhetoric that, you know, Christians are only supposed to take advice from Christians, but it it really is one of the only ways that you can start to sort of see outside of yourself and and, um, be a little bit more objective about it. And I think, you know, once you have realized, once you've noticed and validated and put words to religious abuse that you've experienced, I think one of the most healing things you can do is find other people who have gone through the same thing, because that's the way to undo gaslighting is to share what you've gone through and have, I mean, very similar to the conversation we're having right now to share what you've gone through and have somebody say, yes, I've seen that too. Yes, that's so real. And no, that's not okay. Um, And to get that kind of support, I think any trauma that takes place in an interpersonal context has to be healed in an interpersonal context. And so, um, and so finding those relationships of people who actually help you trust yourself. And I mean, I'm a therapist, so I'm biased, but I think um, if you are looking for a therapist, really looking for somebody that specifically mentions religious and spiritual trauma, uh, because typically people who work with it will actually mention it. To end on a slightly more positive note, I want to take it back to you and ask throughout your whole journey coming from that conservative background to where you are now, what labels do you use? What, what do you claim as far as your sexual, your gender and your spiritual identities? Yeah, absolutely. So I identify as queer, identify as a woman and identify as spiritual, but I'm also, you know, I'm in the process of learning a lot about that identity as well. And really thinking about, um, the origins around the word spirituality, because, you know, one thing I really love, I love astrology, as many queer people do. Yeah. I love tarot cards. <laughs> you know, I think this is such a common experience for people who are previously religious is I don't miss the religion, but I miss the ritual. I miss the mindfulness, miss intention setting. And so tarot cards for me have sort of replaced what used to be my daily devotional. And, you know, I will always be somebody that loves ritual, but I found I found rituals that now are empowering to me. So I would say I'm ritualistic and I'm spiritual, but I'm now doing it from a place that makes me feel empowered in the identities that are important to me versus feeling split in those identities. Well, Casey, where can people find you and keep up with all this terrific work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. Um, They can find me mostly on Instagram. It's at Queer Sex Therapy and it's sex education. It's therapeutic. There's a lot around trauma. So I think Instagram would be the best place. Casey, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was so informative and I know super helpful to a lot of people. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Such a wonderful and informative discussion, right? 
You know, something that has been super special about this podcast so far has been hearing from people who may have been struggling in their lives, but hadn't been able to pinpoint the source until listening and something clicked. If that happened to you in this episode, please do take the time to find a therapist or even just a friend to chat it out with. But I do hope if you did hear something you related to, that you find power in knowing that you're not alone and that these types of religious traumas affect a shit ton of people, consciously and subconsciously. Now, here are my main takeaways. Number one, we don't have to divide our lives living dual identities. Our spiritual and or religious experiences can coexist and even be the same as our day-to-day and sexual gender experiences. Actually, they would be enhanced if we combine them. Think Captain Planet Rings, okay? Number two, sexuality is a spectrum. But how can we understand our sexuality if we are not allowed to experience it? If we are not allowed to explore and try things, we cannot possibly have a good understanding without experience. Number three, sex is often seen as naughty, bad, and gross, something you shouldn't even learn about. Well, until marriage or you find a life partner, then you are expected to flip that around to know exactly what you're doing, even though you've never done it before, enjoy it, and do it often with that one singular person. And so often this leads people to feel insecure, inexperienced, guilty, and shameful even after they are married or with a monogamous partner. And to that I say... What the actual hell? Why do we condition people to hate sex, then expect them to reverse that after marriage? It makes no sense and is a royal mindfuck. Really, I just, I have nothing else to say about it. Number four, and this is a big one and an important one to understand for yourself and others. Abusive relationships. This includes personal, romantic, friendships, family, work environments, and with religions. None of these abusive relationships are usually 100% bad. People are typically getting something positive from them, even if it's 90% bad and only 10% good. That 10% is worth it to some people. And even more importantly, that 10% often gives people hope that they will eventually raise that number. This is why it is so important to look at our relationships, what and who we are involved with, what are the percentages, and do we truly feel like we can stand by those numbers while also living an authentic, joyful, and prideful life. Number five, when you're involved in a religion, community, or group, make sure it is not a cult. Does that group look down on others? Are the leaders doing as they preach? This is a big one and one that most followers ignore or somehow justify. Another major one, is there a place where you can report abuse? Can you talk to people outside of that community easily, freely, and without judgment? And if you walked away tomorrow, would you feel fearful? If so, why? Just some things to consider. Number six, forgiveness is a mythology. You do not need to forgive to heal. I'm not saying you need to necessarily get revenge on anyone, but you definitely don't need to forgive them. 
Sometimes it feels good just to say fuck you to that person for purposefully hurting you. You do not owe them anything and you do not have the responsibility to forgive them. I posted links in the show notes for Casey and the B word, which brings us to R. Marshall and their new article, The Name of God, A Trans Approach. R. Marshall is a writer, singer, actor, activist, storyteller, and co-pastor of Sanctuary, a virtual spiritual community committed to justice and intersectionality. Additionally, they are a co-owner of Six Points Letterpress, a letterpress printing company, and the lifestyle editor for MTM Chicago. They currently live in Chicago and hope to make this world a little bit better every day. You are about to hear them read an excerpt from their incredible piece, exploring the language we use when referring to a God figure. If we are all made in God's image, then God is all of us. When we see ourselves in God or whatever we call that higher power, energy or nature, that is powerful and helps to eliminate this trauma that we've been talking about. Here is our Marshall reading a short snippet from their piece. I spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. Okay, that's a lie. I have some self-confidence issues, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about looking in the mirror. Thinking about what we see and how it can differ so much from what we see in our mind or what other people see. I imagine what it's like to see someone who isn't you or isn't you yet. I'm non-binary and it's taken some time to discover that in myself, to learn those words and to incorporate them into my vernacular to use they, them when talking about myself. I also think about the times I am the mirror for someone else, when I reflect the joy or sorrow with empathy or share a laugh after a good story. All of these moments are where God exists. God is meant to be part of us and with us, to be present in our struggles and progress, our triumph and discord, the space where one energy ends and one begins. That's where we find the divine, in the face of the other, whomever that is for you. But for that to be true, for us to believe we can find God in spaces beyond us, there must be a transcendent quality. Transcendence is spoken about a lot when talking about God. The first part of that word is trans, a prefix which means to cross over, a fluidity which allows something or someone to be liminal. If we are to believe that we are created in Magodei, in their image, then everything we say about God has an impact on our personal lives. Everything we say about people has an impact about who or what God is. If God is trans, if God continuously crosses the bounds between you and I, God is present in the mirror. Sobbing as you look into it, pleading to find yourself, God is present in that moment between the person who society tells you to be and the person you know yourself to be. You can go find the full article on the Have a Blessed Gay website, haveablessedgay.com. Please go check it out and sign up for that newsletter. You can also find all the links in the show notes. If you are in an abusive relationship or are struggling, 
please do seek therapy. I am a firm believer. Now, if you need help right this moment, I always post helplines in the show notes, so check them out if you need to. Just know that you are not alone and you should not feel guilty, shamed, or insecure for relating to any of this trauma. You are special, you are purposeful, and you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.